All right, well, good morning again. Hey, if we haven't gotten a chance to, to meet yet, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at uh, Salem. It's, uh, man, it's just, just kind of crazy to me. I woke up this morning and just thinking about all the travel plans that we've got going on and coming up in this, these next days and, and all the things we do as a family, how fast this came. And so, but we are so glad that you guys are here. I hope that today and tomorrow, this, this time is going to be really, really good uh, for you this season as we've been in Mark and kind of moving towards discovering the real Jesus, which by the way, total side note, um, Natalie forgot to mention, um, and so she asked me to do this. If you are interested in finding more uh, about her story, about how you can support her prayerfully, financially, you can find her after uh, the service. She would love to be able to talk with you and connect with you um, as she's getting prepped uh, to go really follow the Lord's leading. Um, to who knows where. She doesn't know yet. So it's an exciting time for her. Kind of scary, but exciting. So um, Christmas time. Christmas time. I love, I love Christmas. Uh, you know, I, there's, there's always a group of people um, in life where Christmas is just really hard. There's something about the season. Uh, there's something about memories, experiences. There's something uh, about whatever that is, our past, our present, uh, the way that we long for our future that can be really hard. But for me, I, I love Christmas, and I know that's probably true for, for many people too. And I remember growing up, I used to love, love getting gifts, you know, like just watching my daughter open gifts. There's this, there's this um, experience that I get through her because I remember in some way, shape, or form what it was like to be a kid and to open gifts. I used to love getting gifts, but somewhere along the line, that changed for me. You see, the older I got, the less I felt like I really needed you know, and like you get something in a gift and it just kind of, you know, you use it for a while, it goes into a closet, maybe use it all the time, but really it just means that you're just adding stuff to your home. And so maybe there should be this rule that you get something, you give it away. Maybe that would be a really good, you know, a really good way to do it. But I just love giving gifts. Um, and here's the thing, um, there's, there's, there's bad gifts and there's good gifts, okay? Um, I was listening to a friend the other day talk about this and he was like, here's all the worst gifts. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that because inevitably somebody in there in the, in the service is going to go, oh, I got to go home and change that out really quick before my, my, my loved one uh, discovers that and then heard it this morning, like the five worst gifts. Okay, we're not going to do that. But what makes a good gift? What makes a good gift? I would argue that maybe there's a couple things that make a good gift. The first thing is this, that it has really good value, whatever that is, and it has use. And so as they open that gift and whatever it is, you know, if it has no value and if it has no use, man, it's just not a good gift, right? Which there are some of those gifts. So it's got to have value and it's got to have, and it's got to have use. You got to be able to use it. Here's the difference between a good gift and I think, and the, like a, a great gift, okay? A great gift um, adds this idea of a need, right? Or a, like the best gift, like you open something and not only does it have value, not only can you like use it over and over and over in some way, shape, or form, it's something that, that's connected to your needs, as a human being, as a person, it's a hobby or whatever it is. And it's like all of a sudden you go, man, I, I really, I needed this. Like, and you go, man, like, thank you. This is fulfilling on so many levels. Thank you. And when you get to give somebody a gift like that, you're like, man, that just feels good. It feels good. But then there's an ultimate gift. There's an ultimate gift. Here's what an ultimate gift is. I think the ultimate gift has not only value, not only does it has use, and not only did you need it, it's something that you didn't expect. 
Oh, you open that and you see, like you ever buy something for somebody and they open it up and their eyes, I mean, it's like so big because never in their wildest dream would they have imagined that this would actually be the thing inside of it. You're like, that's so ultimate. And people are like, man, it's like, you know, sometimes with other gifts, you're like, man, thank you. I love you. This is like, I love you. Like, I so love you. Like, I don't know that you realize how much I love you right now. Because not only does it have value, not only can I use it, and not only does it connect to my needs, it's something that I didn't expect. And we're like, oh man, that's an ultimate, that is an ultimate gift. Guys, some of you guys are going to hate me this morning. (laughs) I think draw names is cheating. Draw names is cheating. Here's why. Because I think that sometimes you, you put your thing in and you put like one thing, two things, three things, and then you look and you get your name and ding, 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 and you get your name and then you look and it's got one thing. I'm like, what am I supposed to get him? What am I supposed to get him? Because if I don't get him that, then I fail. But if I get him that, it's no fun. You know? Like there's this real, there's this in some sense, like, like in some sense, like, like there are these circles in which we could go, like we all put one thing on draw names. And I'm not saying draw names is bad, by the way. I just think it's cheating, okay? So you put one list on there. You might as well just say, hey, for next year's Christmas gathering, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're all just going to pick uh, our own name, buy ourselves a gift, and then that will be Christmas. Because that's really all that is. And that's not the way that always works. Right? It, can be, it can be far more extravagant than that. But like, if there's just one thing. Like it, takes, it, ta- it changes the entire dynamic of the gift. And you're like, Seth, like, why are you knocking on this? I'm like, I'm not. I'm not knocking on this because here's the thing. Um, of all people, I need this the most. Guys, because as much as I love, I love giving good, good gifts, let me just tell you, I am the absolute worst. I am the worst. I feel like I'm the worst gift giver. Okay, so, so one year... Um, um, I got my wife this gift, um, and then she opened it up, and then it was these really cool, I got them on sale, so I didn't pay full price for them, but, but they were Patagonia, like sandals, and I thought, oh man, my wife's going to love these. They're so cute, they're practical, they're, they're, they're outdoorsy, oh man, she's going to love them. And she opened them, and when I, I was expecting, ah, and she just looked at them. I was like... Man, I thought that was a great gift. <laughs> you know, I'm so bad. Funny, if you just told me what I should have got you, maybe that's what I should have done. Because they sat in her closet for about five years because I'd ask her once a year, hey, have you worn those? Nope, and eventually I stopped asking because I knew she got rid of them. <laughs> I thought it was a great gift. I'm terrible. Uh, one year, um, I got her notes. My, my wife loves getting notes like in the morning, you know, and so I got her these. And I think I mentioned this before, but I got her this stack of notes and I, I stuffed them into her stocking and I thought, oh man, this is going to be so good. And so she pulls them out and she goes, oh, what are these? I said, sweetheart, those are empty notes. I'm going to write you some for the next year. She's like, Seth, that's so sweet. Fast forward seven years, I pull up in a drawer, I find this stack of things. I said, honey, what are these? And she goes, those are the notes that you said that you would write. Oh, I'm the worst, guys. I'm the worst. I think that I'm so good. I'm really, I'm just not. Like, I need this type of a thing. But guys, if you guys want an ultimate gift, you want to be the ultimate gift giver, like, find something that has value, find something that has use, and find something that they need, and find something that they would never expect. Oh, that's when they'll love you. And some of you are like, man, I need to start, like, for next year, tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right, me too. I'm with you, let's go meet at Walmart, okay? We'll find something. 
And we'll start thinking about like how to be the ultimate gift giver. You check those off of your list, you're going to be a rock star at Christmas. Because we're in this Christmas season. And part of how we do this is that we think about Advent as we're waiting, as we're coming, this expectant birth of Jesus, right? Which really ultimately is the ultimate gift, isn't it? You see, we started with the idea of hope and the desperation in the world, right? We started with hope. Uh, and then what was next? Remember, remember? Peace. Shalom. We move around. We go to joy. And there's this joy that we can experience. And lastly, before we get to Christmas Eve services tonight, this is where we see love. You see, an ultimate gift, guys, is generated by an extravagant type of love. It's a type of love that you're not going to find anywhere else because it has value, it has use, it has need. Everybody needs the love of God. And by the way, it's something that you would never expect, not to mention you can never afford. God is not just the ultimate gift, it is the supreme gift. And so I go, man, I love giving gifts. I happen to be terrible at it, but I love giving gifts. Why? Because I think it connects us to the greatest love act of all time, which is Jesus. It's like Jesus, like he enters into the world and God's like, wraps it up and goes, here you go. And so as people begin to open the box, like, man, I didn't expect that. But when they begin to understand that not only is there value and use and need, there is like this deep, incredible desperation that I have for this. And I never would have expected, I never could have bought this on my own. And it's the most supreme, ultimate gift that we could ever unwrap. And so as I think about Mark, guys, here's the deal. We've been in Mark for 16 weeks. We've been on a journey to capture the real Jesus. The funny thing about Mark is that he skips over the birth narrative. He goes right to the ministry because his thing is to deal with the cross, you see, and this is what happens is that Jesus' ministry, this morning we're going to kind of re-sum up and cap off where we've been for 16 weeks. And so as Jesus' ministry kicks off, right, you know what he says, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. So as we come over here, right, so we think so oftentimes this is kind of our, this is kind of our simple theology is that we know that there is earth and then we know that there is heaven. And so when we think about this kingdom that, that God is creating, we get this picture that, that God sent his son Jesus to earth, which is entirely true, right? This is a part. This is the narrative story. And when we look at this, this is the Christmas story, right? God sends his son and so this is like that John 1 moment, right? like the word becoming flesh, that Philippians 2, when Jesus is like, hey, this is where I belong, but I'm willing to sacrifice this so that I can come here. This is the Christmas story, right? And so, and what Jesus says, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. And so then what we think then is we go, okay, here's the deal. I get to come. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is coming over here and he gives me salvation. And then all of a sudden, I have this eternal perspective. And I go, that's true. That's entirely true, but it's not the entire picture. But if we were just to stop and pause for a second, because here's the thing, when I think about this, this is kind of like the salvation piece of the gospel story, right? So when we look at this, this element of this, we go, gosh, we are fully loved. 
Like you're fully known. Like you have the opportunity by God to be fully known and fully loved. So in all of your brokenness, in, in all of your depravity, in every single messy situation, in all of the cumulative, and some of you guys are like, I remember that moment this morning. I remember yesterday. I remember a year ago. Can, can God really know that and still love me? Yes, he can. That's the gospel story. You are fully loved. But it's not just 98% of you. It's all 100%. He knows everything about you. And he's, he says, I fully love you. But see, that's not the entire story. And this is what we talked about with the kingdom. Because Jesus isn't talking just about this. Jesus says, I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven to you. And so all of a sudden, here's what we do, is that we create this whole new circle. And we realize that you've got the kingdom of earth, and you've got the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, no, 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 here's what I'm doing. I'm bringing these together. I'm merging them together. I'm bringing the heaven to you. And so in some sense, this, this is an already, there's this overlap right here, right in this space. This is an already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Is this part true? Absolutely. Is there eternity? Is there perfection in, in Jesus, right? Yes, absolutely. But what Jesus says is, no, but there's a time being, there's a temporary time right now for an undisclosed amount of time in which the kingdom is right here. And you are a participant of that kingdom. It's not a dual citizenship type of thing. It's an easy thing for us to be loved from a distance, but to not follow from close. And so what Jesus is doing is he says, here's the deal. The gospel promises this, but it also calls you. The gospel together says, I want you to be fully committed. Not just are you fully loved, I want you to be fully committed. And that's the story of the gospel. It's a salvation and it's a transformation. It's this drawing closer to Jesus over and over and over. And that's what the gospel of Mark is about. It's about giving us a real picture of Jesus. You guys have maybe heard me say this. And if you're a guest, maybe this is the first time. And maybe this will be surprising or shocking. Maybe it won't. But over the last 25 years, roughly 40 million people have left your church. You're like, I thought this was a Christmas Eve service. We're supposed to be talking about the birth narrative. That's tonight. We're recapping Mark right here, 40 million people. And what they're finding is that it's not because the church has asked too much. It's not like people are overweighted and burdened by all of this stuff. They're actually leaving the church because they've been asked too little. You see, Jesus has been too little of a part of their everyday life. And so they've lost interest. There's too many hoops to jump through. It's just about church. It's just about Wednesday. Where does work? Where does where do I play? Where do all of those things fit in to life? And it's a great question. Guys, I was thinking about this this week. When we disconnect Christ from Christianity, when you subtract Christ from Christianity, do you know what you get? It's not a real word, but it's the word eanity. Do you know what that sounds like? Insanity. That's what the gospel mark. You can't. You can't remove Christ from Christianity. You remove Christ from Christmas, what you get is moss. People just want more. More of something that's not Christ. Over and over and over. And Mark is like, here's the deal, guys. I want to give you a real picture of the real Jesus. Because it's so easy for us in our world to, to capture and to make up this, this version of Jesus in our brains. And for whatever, the, whatever it is, the byproduct of, like sometimes you have this picture of this beautiful white sash that's like never dirty, you know? Uh, and he walks around with the lamb and he pets it and, you know, and like there's like a, maybe there's a lion next to him and you're like, how'd that enter in? I don't know, but he can tame animals, whatever, you know? It's like, seems weird, right? That Jesus is this picture, right? And so we have these, these, these images of Jesus. 
And I think that what we've been doing in, in Mark is that we've been getting this new picture, right? We're fighting against this cliche, this kind of this generic version of Jesus, this fake or false version of Jesus in our mind. doesn't mean that all of that is wrong, but there is a real Jesus that's being presented in the gospel of Mark. And so what we're discovering is that there's this new picture, this new portrait that's being built in and remade into our brains over and over and over. And we'll get to see some of that today. This is why I love this. You know, we, we use this at the very beginning. We've shared it a couple different times, this quote. The church is designed to be, and by the way, it needs to be, because that's what we long for. That's what we, that's what we need. That's what the world needs, a community of people who are united. They're united around what? It's a clear vision of who? A fake, false Jesus? No, a generic Jesus? No, a messy, opaque version? No, this is the real person works in ministry of Jesus. But oh, by the way, it's not just about what's in here, it's also about how we live that in the world in which we live in. The real context of the world in which we live in. And so here's the deal, guys, in order for us to figure out where we are going and to figure out how we've been doing in this, we have to go back to the beginning. So when we started this series in Mark called Follow Me, we started in the first eight verses, which is the prologue to the book. Here's how it starts, chapter one, verse one. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you read that and you're like, wow, that's such a simple, easy verse, and yet it is jam-packed with Bible story. Because if we come back to our board again, like here's what we're going to remember. All right, so there's this moment, like way, way back when, thousands and thousands of years of the God, right, he enters into the story in a new way. We know that God has existed, right, this is mind-boggling for all time, right, in eternity. We don't know how to really wrestle with that, but that's how it is. He's existed for all time, and as he enters in, and as time comes into existence, he creates, right, he creates this universe and this cosmos that has this period, and it goes, and it goes, and it goes, right? And so as we come back to the beginning, right, in this Genesis is part of the story. We remember this from Adam and Eve. So you've got Adam and then you've got Eve, okay? So here's these two and they're living in perfection. Guys, what is perfection? Does that mean that they know everything? No, it doesn't mean that they have all knowledge or all omniscience. It just means that everything is working perfectly in the way that it's designed to. You see, God defines this in the Old Testament with the Hebrew word shalom. It means that it's complete, it's whole, it's without cracks, it's without crumbles. It's not that it's like God, but it's God's creation, and it's exactly the way it's supposed to be in all of its design, in all of its beauty. And so God lays the groundwork. He said, here's the deal, you can do anything you want in, in beauty. And the beauty of this is because, because there's really nothing there for you to do. Oh, but there's one thing you can't do. And we like to talk about this as an apple, Right? He says, here's the one thing you can't do. He says, don't eat from that tree. By the way, the Bible doesn't say apple. It's just a fruit. We don't know. Maybe it's a fig, something. And it says, here's the thing. Can't eat it. <laughs> what does humanity do? We're like, cool. What's the one thing we can't do? We do it. Right? And that actually sets the pattern right, in that moment. But as a result of that one act of sin, there is this massive chaos and this brokenness as the world flips upside down. Man and woman who are designed to be selfless are now entirely selfish. And it's a brokenness. It's not a wall that can be scaled. It's not a wall that can be broke down. It is, it is totally inoperable, the condition of the human heart. 
And yet, what Mark says is this is the beginning of the gospel. And so here we go. We, just, we go from here over to just a few chapters and verses later in chapter 3, verse 15. What God says, here's the deal. He says, I'm going to bring a person. It's an unnamed and yet to be revealed person for some time in the future. But he is going to enter into the story and he is going to make all of this right. And so as you begin to read the Old Testament story, here's what you're doing. You go from Genesis to Exodus, to Leviticus, to Numbers, to Deuteronomy, and you read through the whole Pentateuch, and page after page after page, you're looking, is this the person? Is this the person? Is this the person? Like, God, like, we have existed in brokenness. Like, this, this thing, like, this, this totality of brokenness is, is really wearing on us. Like, when are you going to fix this? And you read, and you flip pages, and you go, nope, 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 nope. Eventually you get over to Joshua and to Judges and to Ruth and you get to Ruth and there's this character named Boaz. You're like, man, this guy shows real promise and and God's like, no. I mean, he's through the line of Boaz, but it's not Boaz. He's not the person, right? And so as you begin to read through the pages of Scripture, you go, nope, 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 nope. And again, that's redundant. But it helps you see the timeline. As you begin to look at this, you couldn't be, like wrap your brain around this, is that the people have been waiting since the beginning of creation for, for the Messiah, the anointed one, to come. And guess what? This is thousands and thousands of years of waiting. And Christmas is hard for us when we wait. And yet, here's the story. Over and over and over. Nope, 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 nope. But then enter in, right? Sweet baby Jesus. That was supposed to be a baby in a manger. It looks like a aardvark, I don't know. It's just supposed to be Jesus. But here comes baby Jesus into the story, right? And here's what's so interesting about this is that Mark skips this part of the story and he takes us right to where? To the cross. He takes us right to the cross. And as you look at this, you go, man, what better gift is there in the world than this right here? This is generated by love. This whole thing, right? God is unwavering. In fact, you think about humanity that over and over and over in all of our brokenness, failure after failure after failure, for thousands of years, you think that God would be like, man, you guys are a lost cause. But he commits to it. And he says, I got a gift and he is coming. And in, in, in perspective to you, it might feel like a long time, but guess what? In relationship to eternity, it's a blink of an eye. Oh, and he'll be here soon. And Jesus enters into the story. By the way, Jesus in the Old Testament, or Jesus is his, you know, the, the name given to him, obviously in Aramaic and, and written down in Greek, but in the Old Testament, that would be the, the name Joshua. Do you know what that means? It means Yahweh is salvation. See, this is how, you see, in order for salvation to happen in the way that mankind needed it to, it'd have to be a person who could die for the sins of humanity who had no sins. And so this is why we celebrate Emmanuel, right? Because it's God with us, because the only person who could ever be without sin is Jesus Christ. That's the gospel story. And you look at this, you go, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you see the love? That's generating this. And I'm not talking about the Lion King. Can you feel the love tonight? No, no. We're talking about Jesus' extravagant love. 
This is a whole new story on a whole new level. This is God's unwavering commitment despite everything that's wrong with us. And it is a gift that he wraps. And as Jesus enters into the world, he says, here you go. Not only does there value, not only is there, is there use, you desperately need him. And oh, by the way, you'll never expect how good this is. Oh, and by the way, you can never get it on your own. That's the gift of Christmas. And we tend to make it about the gifts under the tree. You see, as we go on, look at verse 2. Here's what it says. It says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, right? There's this preparation, how good this gift is. There's someone needs to prepare the people to hear and to respond to the goodness of this gift. And so he says, this is an Old Testament prophecy. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You read this, you're like, hey, what Old Testament passages is that from? And you're like, good question. It's from three. Check it out. Well, first one's from Exodus, second one's from Malachi, and the third one is from Isaiah. So when you think about this, I think this is, you're like, why does Mark do this? I think that what he's doing, right, because you've got Exodus, right, you've got Malachi, and you've got Isaiah. And so what is he doing is he's taking something from each part of the Old Testament, and he's bridging this waiting history to say, for all these years, God has had a plan in store. This is where it's finally at. We are finally here. John, this guy named John is gonna prepare the way. Oh, and by the way, he's got a voice. And it's gonna be a voice of one like in the wilderness. If you remember the story in the Old Testament, it's all these people who are coming out of Egypt, right? And so they get into the wilderness as God is leading them to the promised land and everybody gets hangry, hungry, angry. There's no food, there's no water. And they begin to grumble and moan and cry and complain. And it's just terrible. It's just a bad situation. They're just all upset. And so one of the things that they say is, guys, here's the deal. Like Moses, hey, we were better, in, we were better off in Egypt way back there in slavery than we were right now. And here's the truth is that they're right. You're like, what do you mean? Well, because in Egypt, they had, they had a house, they had food, they had water. Oh, but by the way, it was not nearly as good as where God was leading them. That's the point of that story. And there's going to be a voice that comes out of the wilderness, and it's John's voice. And it's not going to be a voice that, that resonates like with the same words of the people. They're like, oh, God, this is the worst. And so all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes in. He's like, yeah, that's actually true. God, this is the worst. What are you doing? It's not a voice that cries out with the people to God. It's a voice that actually calls out to the people and says, no, guys, that's not what God has in store. I've got this thing God has given me to tell you. I'm preparing the way. It's all about this guy, Jesus, and the forgiveness of sins. That's what this is about. And you look at that, and you go, John's voice, and all of a sudden, you're like, man, this is incredible. What does this have to do with me? Because that's John's voice. That's not my voice. And I say, false. Because <laughs> when you look at this, when he says, the people, the people would prepare the way of the Lord to make his paths straight, guys, that's in the second person plural. So it's not John's voice, that's our voice. John starts it, and we join in. And we prepare the way of the Lord. What do we do? We make straight, make straight the paths for Jesus. Guys, the word straight in, in this book is used more times in the book of Mark than the entire New Testament combined. 
It's a really important word. You could trace and highlight and circle and underline your way through the book of Mark, right? In the Greek, it's the word uthus, and here's what it means. It means it just means straight, and it implies that something is bent and broken, and so there needs to be a reshaping, something that needs to be made straight. And here's the adverb form, utheos, and you track this all the way through, and it's not just that God wants to make something straight. It's that as he's doing this, he says, here's what I came to do. Here's what I want Jesus to do. Make straight, and he says, when I'm acting, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go straight away to whatever I'm doing. I'm in the business of making straight. Your response as man is to follow, to, to come be a part of this. Guys, that's what the kingdom of heaven is really about. He says, Jesus is mad merging these two things together, right? It's about God being made king right here. Jesus is the new king of a new type of a kingdom. He's like, I'm going to make straight. I came to restore. Here's what I want you to do. As this is unfolding, I want you to straight away join in. Straight away join in. You see, Mark is setting the precedent that we respond to what Jesus is doing. When we first gave some of this sermon back in the intro and the prologue, I used the story about how when we were first adopting many, many years ago, and we got the call, found out that we were finally selected and matched. And, and so what did we do? After everything was settled, we ran to the room. We went straight away to, to this new room. And everything that was in that room, we decluttered. It didn't matter what sentimental value there was in that room. Like it could have been something from high school. And I'd be like, who cares? Get rid of it. It's been 25 years or whatever it is. You know, get rid of it, right? And all of a sudden, you have this room that's prepared for a life that's entering into your home. And then Eden came, and she filled that space. Some of you may know that we were preparing for a second adoption this year. When we found out what we were matched, we did the exact same thing. We ran to that room. Correction, Nikki ran to that room, and she got the whole room ready. I think I just had to watch football. She did everything, and she got that room ready. And our story is unique and challenging in that that didn't happen for us. But now that room is every bit ready for a life to enter in. Straight away, you declutter the room, you make room for the person who's entering into the story. We're making room for the real Jesus. And here's what happens. And I think this is what we long for. Because as John continues in this, look at verse 4. It says that John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And guess this, get this, is that everyone from all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem was going out to him and were being baptized in the River Jordan and confessing their sins. And you're like, man, why this surge? This is John the Baptist. This is not even Jesus. Jesus hasn't even entered into the story. At this point, Jesus has been born, but people don't know him. He's been a carpenter. He's living his life as a carpenter. He's buying time. He's waiting for the moment when God says, go. John the Baptist starts preaching this, and all of a sudden you begin to think maybe there's a sense of wandering in people's hearts. Because as John the Baptist says, guys, I'm calling out. I got something better. And people begin to draw and flock and run to John the Baptist. Because there's something, and what he is offering, it desperately, we desperately need. And here's how, here's how I love this. I love this in verse 7. Here's what he's preaching. He says, oh, by the way, after me, look at the humility in this, after me, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You think that what I did was powerful? You think that what I'm doing is good? I baptize you with water. He who comes with, comes next, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit. 
You see, there's this pointing to Jesus in the prologue. Guys, we've been in this for 16 weeks. 16 weeks, where are we at right now? Some of you guys might be wondering, why in the world did we choose Mark in the first place? Here's some reasons. Here's one of the reasons. First one is its emphasis on Jesus, right? Because there's this longing inside of each of us. There's a wandering that's happening in the world and in the church today. We want not a fake version of Jesus. We want the real Jesus. Here's another reason. We chose it because it has serving in it as this idea, uh, that this posture of serving, right, um, that, that we did not come, like that we hold the same attitude as Jesus who said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. You see, in order to be builders of the kingdom, what we need to do is that we need to be people who have a posture of service. So it's not about me, it's about Jesus, and it's about the kingdom. Third thing is this, is about disciple making. And give me just a couple minutes because I want to walk through this. Here's where we've been so far because after the prologue, 16 weeks, Jesus, the very first thing that he says is he grabs a couple of people, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and he says, here's the deal, I want you to follow me. Guess what? When you do, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Right after that, we looked at how Jesus, he went to a synagogue, right? And he begins to teach, and everyone's amazed at his teaching. Jesus' ministry is just beginning. Later, he goes to Peter's house. He heals his mother-in-law. Oh, and after that, everybody from town knows, and they begin to flock to Jesus. It says that they were basically up all evening. Imagine that as a disciple. This is the ministry of Jesus. This is, what he's, this is the discipleship with Jesus. Oh, and by the way, life is going to be messy with Jesus. The next story we looked at is a man with leprosy. He's covered in white spots over and over and over white spots. It's a person who people would never, ever touch. And as he comes to Jesus and all of his own brokenness and all of his humility, he says, hey, Jesus, if you're willing, you can touch me and I'll be clean. And Jesus says, oh, I am. I'm willing. And the disciples, oh, in shock, probably. You see, ministry is messy. And then he calls Levi. <laughs> Levi is a tax collector. <laughs> Levi is the person that all the disciples hate because he's been, he's been smooching off of them. He's been living off of the fruit of the spoils. He's like one for the kingdom or one for Rome and one for me. Over and over and over, he's living. He's got a life of luxury. And Jesus looks at this man and says, follow me. Where does Levi take him? He takes him to his home and, and Jesus begins to sit and eat a meal with everybody who's of the worst reputation in the town. And as the Pharisees are peeking in through the window, they don't even have the guts to talk to Jesus. So they ask the disciples, why is he doing this? The disciples are like, I don't know. This is Jesus' ministry. We're learning. We're figuring this out, right? Then later on, right, as his popularity begins to grow, right, he comes to this spot on, like on the crowd, and all of a sudden he sees this massive herd of people running, and Jesus is like, uh-uh, I'm not getting crushed by them. Says he was afraid for his life. He's like, I got a mission that I got to fulfill. It's dying on a cross, not dying by a bunch of people, on their, in their feet at least. And so what does he do? gets back on a boat, he teaches them, eventually goes up on a mountain, he calls together 12, and it's like he looks down at that massive herd of people and says, I know that this is all about what I'm going to do for them, but I can't bring this message to everybody. I need messengers. And so he calls 12 and brings them to himself. And then he begins to redefine family. He says, everybody, anybody who does the will of the Father, that's the part of my family. Oh, by the way, do you think that caused some problems in his own family? Yeah, they said he's out of his mind. And you think your, your family is hard. He gets it, right? And then he gives this, this whole, these, these, the parable of four soils. 
right? And it's all about listening. And it's all about this idea of like these people who just left and there are people who come to him and just like, hey, here's the deal. You want to know about the kingdom? Don't leave. Don't make me a part of your life. Make me everything. Come to me, follow me, and I will give you the answers that you've been looking for. Oh, let's do this together. By the way, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's a tiny seed, but when you plant it and it grows, guess what? It grows more and more and more and more. The kingdom is like an invasive plant, and it will spread and spread and spread all throughout the kingdom. That's what this is going to look like. It's going to start small, but boy, is it going to explode big. And they get on a boat and Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And so they get on the boat and as they go, uh, Jesus falls asleep in the bottom of the boat and the disciples are like, hey, everything's fine until the windstorm comes. 15 foot waves begin to crash over the boat and they're like, oh my gosh, we're gonna die. And they say, Jesus, don't you care? And he's like, peace, be still. And they're like, who is this? That even the wind and the water obeys his command. Oh, I thought he was big before, but this is even bigger. It's not just healing. It's all of creation. Then they get to the other side, (laughs) and I picture Peter getting out of the boat and looking up and going, this is not where I thought we were going to be. And it's the land of the pagans. It's the land of the people who don't know Jesus. And sure enough, comes a running demoniac man, and Peter's like, "Mm -mm, nope, (laughs) this is all you, Jesus. And Jesus heals the man they eventually leave. You'll hear more about that story when we jump back, back in in January. He returns to the other side. There's a man with a dying daughter that he goes to heal. Oh, and by the way, Mark points us towards the cross and he gives this example of John the Baptist who dies and says, don't forget that we're on the trajectory for, for death on the cross. This is about dying for the forgiveness of sins. And then in the end, he says, it's time for you as disciples to go out. So here's how I want to end this. As we come back to this, like if we were to take this, if we were to pick back up on this story and come over here and to recontinue that timeline, right? And it's a timeline that's still going and ongoing today, right? But Mark, and you got this moment, 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 moment. We just captured for 16 weeks, whenever 16 is, like we've been 16 weeks, we've been tracking through the gospel of Mark. And here's what I want us to notice is that there is a transition that needs to happen in our lives. It's a transition from waiting, 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 Two, following, 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 following. You see, that's where we're at. As we finish this Christmas season, as we get to celebrate Christmas tonight, I want you to know that disciple making is a focus of Jesus. And I could give you, for sake of time, I won't give you these, but the last one I want to give you this is why Mark is because of demons. You see, Jesus is on a mission to build a kingdom and Satan will do everything he can to stop it. That's the world in which we live in. And so as we look back at the past 16 weeks, let me ask you two questions. I'll invite the worship team up. Last 16 weeks, two questions. First one is this, is your vision for Jesus changing? Are you beginning to see it's not a fake version of Jesus, it's a real, historical, challenging, but loving Jesus? And the second one is this, is are you following? We're 16 weeks in. Guys, it's easy to be loved from a distance, but this is about the gospel demands. We are fully, fully loved. We can also be fully committed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. 
God, this is it's a special privilege to be here on Christmas Eve morning. And we know that this is going to look different than our stuff tonight and on our celebration as we look at the, at the narrative and the birth of Jesus and as we're reminded of that gift. But Lord, this morning, I pray that for all of us who are here, myself included, that as we hear this, as we just look and recap Mark, that we would be reminded of what the gospel calls us to. It's something that we long for more than anything else is the real historical Jesus, not this fake version in my mind, but that we would look to him and say, gosh, and only in Jesus am I fully known and fully loved. Nowhere else is that possible. This is the greatest, most extravagant, generated gift of all times. And it's because it's one that has value, it has use, I need it. Oh, and by the way, I never would have expected it and I can never get it on my own. This is the gift of Jesus. And Lord, I pray this morning that we would come to you in all of our brokenness and go, man, I am loved. But pray also, Lord, that the gospel would nudge and pull on us to take that next step to say, I want to be fully committed to you. We love you. Amen.